Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, pastor at Hope, and we are so glad that you are listening in. We would love to connect with you in person at our Sunday gathering. In the meantime, we hope this message points you to Jesus, the reason we gather. Nearly a year ago, we started a sermon series called Table Read. Every Sunday morning, we took the aerial view of one entire book of the Bible, or sometimes two, or even in the case of the Minor Prophets, 12, in one single Sunday. And this gave us the aerial view of God's story, what's been called the true story of the world. And as we come to a close of this sermon series, as we explore this book of Jude, if you're wondering if we're skipping Revelation, we haven't. We did that with John a while back, if you were around for that. So that's why. I hope it's been encouraging. I know it's been an encouraging thing for me. I've loved exploring the big picture of Scripture. Because it's shown me the big picture, actually, of God's heart. See, the Bible is revelation. It's a revelation. This is not just some book of rules. This is actually God revealing his heart, revealing who he really is. And this is important because without the Bible, I think I would squeeze God into like my own little suitcase of expectations about deity or my own sort of, um, you know, preferences about who God is and not who I think and what I think God should do. But Scripture presents a portrait of God that does not conform to my expectations at all. It does not conform to my ever-changing preferences. The God who is revealed in the Scripture is the one who challenges me all the time and who comforts me all the time. And though it's hard sometimes, I wouldn't want it any other way. Uh, So for instance, um, I wrestle with the fierce parts of Scripture. And we've encountered it quite a bit in this journey. Especially the fierce words and actions of Jesus himself. And so, they don't seem to me at first glance or second glance or sometimes even third glance to fit or mesh well with the love and the mercy of Jesus. But I've noticed over the course of this sermon series, this tension resolve a little bit. You see, over and over and over again, we see how God is gentle and fierce. We saw this in the Exodus when with the profound gentleness of God sort of stooping down and hearing the cries of Israel in the midst of their abuse and rescues them. And yet God's rescue is fierce. It's a fierce rescue. And the same gentle yet fierce heart of love is revealed throughout the pages of God's story over and over and over again. And then this heart of God becomes flesh in Jesus. Jesus who is gentle to all who are weak and vulnerable and yet has fierce words and actions for the unrelenting spiritual abusers of his day who harm the vulnerable. It's fierce. 
I think we all struggle with the fierce sections of Scripture, don't we? I think we struggle, though, as well with a Christianity that has nothing to say or do about people who do unrelenting harm. So in the end, I actually think that we prefer to have a Jesus who has fierce words for Pharisees and other spiritual abusers and nothing to say or do at all. Well, this morning, we're going to be reading Jude. It's, I mean, if you turn in your Bibles with me, you'll probably miss it. It's, the, it's a very small sermon, actually. It's right before the book of Revelation, the very last book in our Bibles. Jude is a brother of James, according to verse 1, which means he is also a brother to Jesus. And like his older brother Jesus, Jude is fierce and tender. Fierce towards those who do unrelenting spiritual harm. And yet profoundly tender to those who are experiencing doubt. Because of that. And maybe that's you this morning. You're surprised you're even here this morning. You're experiencing doubt because of church. You know, you're th- you, you used to think church is where doubt melted away. You're actually experiencing confusion and doubt because of church. Well, I believe Jude was written for you. But first, let's pray, Lord. Would the words of my mouth and would the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock, our redeemer? And Lord, because you are our redeemer, we boldly pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts this morning so that we would see Jesus in his majesty and in his gentleness and worship. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. In July, our family spent some time at my in-law's cottage, which sits on a small lake. And this small lake is just big enough for a small motorboat, but barely. So boats, when they're all out, take up every square inch, it seems, of this small lake on a nice day. And so they can zoom very closely to the shore. Well, our kids love to play on the lake shore. And so to keep them safe, my in-laws like to throw a buoy in the water, keeping these speeding motorboats that are swinging around the corner there away from their grandkids and away from my kids. Well, this year, it was my job, actually, to place the buoy. And so I'm like, okay, I can do this. But after they saw where I placed it, they sort of looked at me and I tried again. <laughs> Try again. That is way too close. I had no idea, but they knew how close these boats could cruise in, and they wanted to keep our kids within that safe boundary. They were loving my kids with the authority of their wisdom, with the authority of their experience, and they were creating a loving boundary for them. And after that buoy was placed at the right distance, actually, it made us all relax, and we told our kids, you know, have fun on the shore. Swim as much as you want. Knock yourself out. Just stay inside the buoy. So long as they did this, they were safe and they were free. You see, freedom and safety often go together. In fact, my wife and I have a theory that that's what we're all looking for in a relationship. Freedom and safety. Where can I experience freedom? Where also can I experience safety? Not just physical safety, but 
spiritual safety and emotional safety. Well, for Jude, the safest and the most free place in the world was within the boundaries of God's love. And in this short sermon, Jude is basically saying to them and saying to all of you this morning, stay inside the buoy. The place of safety and freedom. We're going to quote him exactly. Keep yourselves in God's love. I'm told ancient Celtic monasteries use stone enclosures this way. They would set up their community within the city, not outside of the city. They would set them up within the city, and then they would set up this circular sort of wall, this stone wall, and they would kind of have a boundary marker that way with a gate of entrance. And so George Hunter, one scholar, writes, the wall did not signify enclosing away from the world. They did not keep out the world. The area signified an alternative way of life. This enclosure, in other words, was like a sacred buoy to them that said, you are entering into a sacred space. When you cross that gate, everyone who walked in heard and experienced freedom and safety. This enclosure didn't box people out, but invited people in and said, this is the place of freedom and safety. This is the place you want to be. Come and stay. Well, Jude is doing a similar thing in this very short sermon. He's writing to Jesus followers who he refers to as the beloved. That's constantly what he's referring to his listeners as. The beloved, the beloved, the loved by God. And that's what they were. And in Christ, that's what you are as well. You are the beloved. And Jude just wants to celebrate this truth. That's his first impulse is to sort of celebrate their belovedness. Their what he calls their common salvation. Verse 3. But the beloved were in danger. And so Jude decides it's more important to alert them of the danger. There were influencers in their community that were confusing them. They were manipulating, manipulating them for their own gain. And ultimately telling them, swim outside the buoy. Here's how Jude puts it in his own words. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation. Again, he wants to celebrate their common salvation. I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in and noticed those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into license and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jude spends most of his sermon making us feel the danger of these folks and their influence. And I say feel because if you read this in one sitting, which you should, you will feel things. And that's on purpose. Because like his brother, James, and like his brother, Jesus, Jude uses all kinds of unforgettable images in this short sermon that impacts kind of the right side of our brain. Jude doesn't share our skepticism of human emotions at all. He appeals to them in this letter. And so in rapid fire succession, he calls up these unforgettable stories 
There were shared stories to his audience, stories that were in their Hebrew Bible, and even popular Jewish writings that were outside of their Hebrew Bible, like First Enoch and a book called The Assumption of Moses. You know, these listeners knew these stories the way that we kind of know the plot lines to Disney movies. And so all he has to do is say a few words or reference a few images or make a few references and then it will start to flood their collective imagination. He's a preacher. This is what he does. And what does he do? Well, if you cast your eyes to the text, we can just get a, a flyover view of what he does. The first thing he does is he compares these influencers to three infamous rebellions and then three infamous rebels in the Hebrew Scriptures. So first, the wilderness people. And then second, this strange angelic rebellion in Genesis where angels lusted after humans. And then Jude artfully reverses and references a story where the opposite happens. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah, where amongst other things, men lusted after angels, or what Jude calls different flesh. And then he compares the influencers to three infamous rebels. So, first, Cain, who did what he wanted and murdered his brother. And then Balaam, who did what he wanted and he led Israel into sexual immorality and idolatry. And then Korah, who did what he wanted when he and his clan rejected Moses. And then he compares these influencers to five unforgettable images, hidden reefs that will take down a boat unawares. Waterless clouds that, that promise much, especially if it's dry, but deliver nothing. Dead and fruitless trees that for all of the energy required to put into it, produce nothing. Kind of like my garden this year. Now, wild waves, for all their movement, for all of their bustle, these wild waves, all they do is churn up gross foam. You know what I'm talking about. Wandering stars that for all their flash just are doing what they want. And in the ancient mind, we're breaking God's created order. And for just a page and a half of Scripture, this is a lot of imagery. There's a lot of feels in just one and a half pages. Why does he do this? Danger is why. These influencers were quiet influencers, the most dangerous kind. They crept in, Jude says, but they were quietly wreaking havoc. And Jude wants his people to get wise about it. Jude wants his people to get wise about power dynamics in the church. These folks that were tearing apart the church, they were grumblers, Jude says. They were without the Holy Spirit. They were doing just basically what was natural to them, using others for their own advantage, using and sort of like perverting the grace of God for their own agenda and for their own desires. And clearly people weren't aware of this danger at all. If they were, Jesus wouldn't have to sort of write this letter or write this sermon. Remember, he just wanted to celebrate salvation. He didn't want to write a warning, but he does. I like what New Testament scholar Ben Witherington III says. Today, we might say that Jude throws everything at them but the kitchen sink. Why? To make the audience divest themselves of these false teachers and their teachings. The upshot is clear. 
if these opponents are like the worst examples in Jewish tradition, they should be avoided and shunned at all costs. No wonder Jude says, keep yourself in the love of God. There was danger all over. I wonder if you've experienced this before. You're swimming and you're having fun and then all of a sudden the lifeguard blows the whistle and there's like something dramatic and traumatic happening. It's like, it just happens. That whistle is like, I can recall what that feels like. It's when somebody with a higher view blows a whistle and alerts you to danger. This is Jude. This is what Jude is doing. He warns them. He warns us. He blows the whistle. He alerts us all of spiritual danger. Folks who would cheapen maybe the, 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 the sort of grace of God or the teachings of, of Jesus as a means to do whatever they want. He's saying, be wise. Wise enough. Look around. Open your eyes. Don't be naive. Folks who would take advantage of you for a material gain. These folks are hidden reefs, Jude says. They're hidden reefs. If you're on a boat and you hit something under the water, it takes you down. Jude is saying, there is a hidden reef among you. And so how do we heed Jude's call? How do we keep ourselves in God's love? How do we stay within the boot where there is safety? Well, I want to offer two things this morning as a way to sort of summarize this amazing sermon, Jude. We must contend for the gospel. And we must comfort with the gospel. And so first, we must contend for the gospel. Jude states this big idea in verse 3. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write you about salvation we share, I felt compelled, I was urged to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. Later on in the book of Jude, Jude will say, pray in the Holy Spirit. I get to, I sort of can imagine Jude sort of praying for this church and, and wanting and even sitting down to write this letter. Um, it's just kind of just a celebratory letter. And could you imagine if that was in our Bibles? We would love it. We'd be like, this is an incredible letter in our Bibles that just celebrates the gospel and the grace of Jesus. But maybe he's praying in the Spirit and, and, and God the Spirit was like, you've got to warn them. There's, there's people there that are causing some serious issues. And so he does this. He changes course. And so he says, I want to urge you to contend for the faith. That word contend is a struggle word. It's a, the root from which we get the word agony. It's an active word. It means there's an active struggle that must occur in our lives if we're going to, to quote Paul, walk and step with the gospel. Walking in step with the gospel is not a sort of a luxurious walk in the park. It's more like a struggle. We contend to do so. And when it comes to what Jude calls the faith, the faith, okay, not just faith, like, like the act of laying hold of Jesus and what he's done for us, like that, no, no, what he's talking about, the faith, what Paul would call maybe the gospel, the contents of what we believe. When it comes to this, there are two major, major sort of Dangers that we must contend against. And the first I would call license. And this is what Jude's community had to contend against. He writes in verse 4. 
For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you, their ungodly people, and pervert the grace of our God into a license for morality. And deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign, our master and Lord. This is when license is when somebody dilutes God's grace by rejecting God's authority. As Witherington summarized the influencers in Jude's community, they rejected any authority that conflicted with their own. And they saw grace as a marvelous opportunity to do so under kind of a religious cover. But the other danger that we must contend against is legalism. This is when we dilute God's grace by obeying God for our salvation instead of from our salvation. And what a difference in our mix. When we obey God for our salvation, we are in, we are in dangerous territory. When we obey God from our salvation, everything is different. Obeying God for our salvation often results in adding human rules, well-intentioned rules to God's word because the legalist is so afraid and living in so much fear of breaking rules. But both license and legalism are slavery. They are not safe, nor are they free. Because both Listen to this. Both miss out on relationship with Jesus. With King Jesus. Sovereign Jesus. The person we were made for. And so the only way to kill legalism, the only way to kill license, is to look with the eyes of your heart at the person of Jesus. That's how Legalism and license are kind of anti-gospel because they are anti-Jesus, if you think about it. They're anti-relational postures in the faith. The only way that you can sort of see the grace of God as sort of a cover to reject the authority of Jesus is if you are not in abiding relationship with Jesus and listening to him and trusting that his way is wiser than your own. And the only way that we can sort of add rules to what Jesus says is if we're kind of not in relationship again with Jesus and, and sort of entrusting ourselves that his path is good, that we don't need to add to it. In fact, looked at that way, legalism is basically saying to Jesus straight up, like, I know better than you. Look, I know, you, I know you say this, but I know better than you. You say I'm saved by grace. I know better than you. I need to, I need to earn my way. Both legalism and license are slavery. So Jude, this letter, says contend for the faith. And it shows us how a relationship with Jesus includes these two dynamics. Number one, that Jesus is master. And that's what we see in verse 4. Jude describes his own brother as sovereign or master in verse 4. And in verse 1, if you take a look, he describes himself as servant of Jesus. Now, this is remarkable. If you're, if you're in a family with brothers and sisters, call to mind your brother or sister right now. Just call to mind your brother or sister. Now, what would it take for you to do such a thing? To call your brother or sister, but call yourself a servant of them. And call your brother or sister Lord and sovereign. What would it take? Well, for Jude, okay, it must have been his crucifixion and resurrection. 
you know, the Gospels say that early on in Jesus' earthly ministry, they didn't believe. His brothers didn't believe. It wasn't until they saw the resurrected Jesus, they were like, oh my gosh, okay, now I believe. You are Lord. See, if Jesus is crucified and risen, like really risen from the dead, then he is master and we are servant. And we don't get a vote. We don't get a vote. It's just the way it goes. And that kills at the root license, doesn't it? Because what Jesus says, we just entrust ourselves to. There's no other way. You know, like like the, like some of the disciples. I, I would walk away from you, Jesus, but there's no other way. There's no other place to go. You are Lord, and everything else doesn't work. But that isn't the only ingredient of the gospel. Jesus is master, yes, but he is also merciful. He is a sovereign victor over all lowercase l lords, but he is also a suffering servant. He saved us when we were his enemies. He is risen, yes, he is master, he is lord, he is sovereign, but in doing so, he defeated his and our enemies, sin and Satan. And so he is sovereign, but he is a kind God, like we sang this morning. This means that we don't just bend our knee to Jesus because he's sovereign, but we actually bend our heart because we want to. Because we see his beauty. And we love him. We usually think of Jesus as one or the other, don't we? We usually think of him as master or merciful. But Jude implies those with the Holy Spirit see him as both. And love him as both. And this is what it means to contend for the faith, to contend for the gospel. We get good at recognizing the cheap alternatives. Legalism and, for Jew, license. And that's no small thing. But that isn't the only thing that Jude says about the gospel. The same gospel that we contend for, Jude demonstrates, is the same gospel we comfort with. In fact, that's why we contend for the gospel. Do you see it? The reason we contend for the gospel is because the gospel is our only comfort in life and in death. We mess with the gospel when we have nothing. Yes, Jude is a fierce book, but it is also a tender book. And don't you see? It is fierce because it is tender. If Jude doesn't contend for the gospel in the way that he does, he would have nothing to comfort us with. And it's comforting in three ways. It's a comfort to believers. Jude says, keep yourself in the love of God. We've talked about this. That's what we do. But what does God do in the equation? Well, he keeps you. He keeps you. The very command, actually, Keep yourself in God's love. is a kind of paradox, isn't it? Keep yourself in the keeping love of God. Keep yourself in your keptness by God. And Jude spells out this twice. Once in the beginning of the sermon and once at the end. Those who have been called who are loved in God the Father and kept. And then verse 24, to him who is able to keep you. And to present you before his glorious presence without fault, with great joy, 
Summary, you are kept. You are kept. You are kept. And then you are kept. I mean, Jude is a preacher. Jude knows what he's doing. He's saying to the church, you are kept. Keep yourself in the keptness of God. You are kept. Say the thing, say it again, and then summarize the thing you just said. That's good communication theory right there. And Jude does it for us. In fact, military strategists have a word for this. They call it encirclement. Only with the gospel we encircle not by an enemy who wants to harm us, but a friend who wants to encourage us. Are you tempted this morning to just walk away? Are you doubting? Are you confused? That's my sacred duty to tell you this morning that you are encircled by the keeping love of God. In John's gospel, Jesus himself prays before his crucifixion that God would keep us, and he does. Friends, this is how we keep ourselves in the love of God. We realize that the love of God is keeping us, has been keeping us all along, and will keep us. I think this keeping love of God dignifies our agency. We're in His hands, but we're not lifeless. We're not limp in His hands. In other words, God is like not an elevator. He doesn't just sort of lift us up, but neither does God sort of treat us like Alex Honnold. Do you know who that is? Who climbed you know, a mountain without a rope. He doesn't treat us like that either. He doesn't just say, look at us and say, hey, go climb that rock face called faith, and I hope you don't fall and die. God doesn't treat us that way. Salvation is of the Lord, but He dignifies our agency by empowering us by the Holy Spirit to climb. He gives us, in other words, a safe harness. And if we're going to continue the climbing metaphor, Jesus is the lead climber. He has set the safety, and He's belaying you. You are kept. You are kept. Keep yourself in the keeping love of God. This same comfort of the gospel extends to those who are struggling right now to believe. She says, be merciful to those who doubt. So the keeping love of God means that we are not harsh to people who are struggling to hang on, struggling to believe, especially, and this is what Jude is especially referring to in this passage, when those folks are doubting because of the spiritual harmers in their midst. And then Jude goes somewhere that I personally probably wouldn't. He writes in verse 22, Be merciful to those who doubt, yes, and then save others by snatching them from the fire. And then to others show mercy mixed with fear. Hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. Who's he referring to? He's referring to the false teachers. He's referring to those who have been unrelenting in their heart. Which is to say, show the mercy of the gospel to the false teachers in their midst. And that's radical. But Jesus said to the agents of his own crucifixion, forgive them for they know not what they do. 
And so Jude, his brother, says something similar. You can show a mercy mixed with profound fear to these false teachers. You can distinguish between the image of God and of sin. They are not their sin. So you can rescue them with compassion and mercy. And that's hard. And it's dangerous. It's like I was... There was a, a sort of fire in my backyard. We have a fire pit, don't worry. And, um, and it's like starting that fire, every once in a while you want to reach in there and grab out something or rearrange the wood. And that's the image that Jude has for us. He's saying, when, you, when, I'm, when I'm saying extend mercy to even these people who are in your midst, I'm saying that's like putting your hand into a fire. So have mercy with great fear. Great fear. It's no small thing. It's dangerous. But it's possible. We love enemies because we are loved enemies. The same grace that saved us can save others. Now, does this radical grace eliminate consequences for bad behavior? No. And the church gets this wrong quite often. But the same grace that saved us can save others, and when we draw an arbitrary line or an arbitrary limit to His grace, we reveal that we ourselves may have not received that radical grace. We have not ourselves rested in His grace. Because we think that we somehow contribute to it. And so what we do is we relax into the radical comfort of the keeping gospel. You are kept. You are loved before the foundation of the world. Tish Warren reminded me in her amazing book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, that I was kept, and I am kept, before I can even make my bed in the morning. And if I don't make my bed, which is often, I am still kept. Before I can do anything good or bad for Jesus that day, I am kept. It might be good for all of us to do this. To wake up, and the very first thing we could say to ourselves in prayer is, I am kept by you. Oh God. This whole day in front of me, I am in your keeping hands. I am in your keeping embrace. Have you ever noticed there's two kinds of hugs in the world? Okay? At least in my friendship groups, there's sort of the quick, you know, like, pat-pat hug. And then there's the hug that you only get every so often. And it's the sort of, I will never let you go bear hug. And you fight it a bit. But it's not unwelcome. And then you eventually melt into it, and your body kind of allows itself to maybe grieve or to maybe experience joy. Friends, I want to say this this morning. Jesus doesn't pat, pat, hug you. He keeps you. What does his hug feel like this morning? What does it feel like? Relax into it. Stop fighting. This is our safety.
keep yourself in his Lord, we want to stay here. Where there's freedom and safety. Where you are Lord of all. And that merciful, good, kind, unrelentingly faithful. We want to stay here. Meet us where we are this morning. Jesus, if your brother Jude can say have mercy on those who doubt, we know that you are saying the same. And you are extending your mercy. May we receive it in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening in. For more resources like this and to learn more about hope, please visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.com. Dot org.